In today's gospel lesson, we pick up right where we left off last Sunday with Jesus in a house in Capernaum with his disciples and Jesus holding a little child in his arms. The disciples had been arguing among themselves which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus took the child and put it in the midst of them, holding it in his arms in order to teach them what real greatness looks like in God's eyes. Whoever welcomes a child like this one in my name, he said to them, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but the one who sent me. As Father Chuck preached last week, Jesus was challenging the stereotype that greatness is to be found among those who are strong physically or wealthy or those who are endued with another expression of worldly power. No, Jesus taught them, if you want to see greatness, if you want to see power, if you want to see God amidst us, then look at a child. Make space for one whom the world would just as soon brush aside and put at the kitty table. In this week's gospel lesson, John wants to be sure that he understands what it is that Jesus has in mind, because he's heard Jesus say, make a space for a child, for one who is otherwise ignored. But John doesn't seem sure exactly how much space we're supposed to make, because children, after all, aren't that threatening, are they? They might ruffle our feathers from time to time. They might get under our skin. They might annoy us. But everybody knows that, at least in small doses, a child, a baby, is endearing. You don't have to be Jesus to look at a baby and know that there's something special going on there. Welcoming a child is one thing. But what about others? What about rivals? What about competitors? What about a pretender? What about someone who would take Jesus' name and use it for himself, casting out demons? Someone who didn't follow Jesus? Someone who didn't really know Jesus but was willing to steal that name like it were a trademark that he can use for himself? What about then? So Jesus looks at Jesus and says, uh, John looks at Jesus and says, Teacher? We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. That's what you want us to do, right? Because he wasn't following us. In that moment, I like to imagine that Jesus smiled at John and looked at the other disciples before taking a long look at the child in his arms. Then looking back to the disciples and saying, why would you want to stop him? For no one who does a deed of power in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. As human beings, we are natural-born discriminators. Is this red fruit going to be tasty and nutritious or bitter and poisonous? Is that animal rustling in the bushes something that I might want to eat or something that's about to eat me? Is the person I'm journeying through this part of life with someone 
who could join me in making a beautiful, fruitful, lifelong relationship? Or is the future we would have together going to be one unending struggle? Are you friend or are you foe? When you reach quickly into your jacket pocket, will you pull out a bouquet of flowers or a firearm? Now, if you're somebody I know well, my family, my friend, my spouse, that terrible thought never even enters my mind. But what if I don't know you? And what if you're different from me? What if you look different from me? And what if I associate the differences between us with something threatening? Can I be counted on to make the right decision in that split-second moment? And what happens if I get it wrong? Several years ago on Good Friday, a friend and colleague played an unpleasant but fairly funny joke on me. He took my water glass and instead of water, he filled it with vodka. I didn't laugh at the time. But as soon as I raised that glass to my lips, having read the longest gospel lesson of the church year, desperate to wet my whistle, I took a sip. And right away, I knew something was wrong. My mouth sent signals to my brain. My brain, trying to process them, said, wait a minute, something's not right here. That is not water. I don't quite know what it is. What could it be? It tastes like it could be cleaning fluid. We don't have time to sort this out. Quick, spit it out. And so sure enough, I spit it right back into the glass. But by the time, the half second later that I put the glass back on the pulpit, I had figured out what he had done, the jokester that he is. And I wished that my brain had been a little bit faster because I would have chugged the whole glass. <laughs> I, I wish I'd done it to watch him sweat through the rest of the sermon to see, to see how things ended up. But we, we all make split-second decisions. Not all of them are life-or-death decisions, but sometimes they are. And we use shortcuts to help us make those decisions efficiently. Shortcuts like friends and family and clan. Shortcuts that help us know, I can trust you when you hand me that glass of water, or I don't know you at all. Maybe I should hold you at arm's distance until we get to know each other. It's a self-protective mechanism that is woven into the fabric of who we are, into our evolutionarily formed DNA. But I wonder what would happen if we took Jesus at his word and we, instead of encountering those strangers and the decisions that they give us from a place of fear or suspicion, what would happen if instead we encountered those moments with trust and belief? Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. What a remarkable thing to say. What a remarkable thing for us to hear. Jesus is inviting us into each encounter to begin from a place of faithfulness instead of anxiety. To look at the people we meet, no matter how different we might be, no matter how different we might sound or think, and to trust that between us 
there is a commonality that allows us to assume that, you know what, we're actually on the same side. Whoever is not against us is for us. Now, that's a radical approach to humanity, and it's a pretty risky one, too. It requires us to set aside everything we've learned through our life about who it is that we can trust and who it is we need to keep our eye on. It requires us to become dangerously vulnerable to complete strangers, vulnerable to them in physical, spiritual, and emotional ways. But imagine what the world would be like if each of us began each new encounter from that place of hopeful possibility instead of fearful worry. Imagine what that would do to our politics. Imagine what that would do to our economy. Dream about what that would do to our church. But maybe a more important question to ask is how in the world is that ever possible? How can we look at this one, this threat, this rival, this competitor, this imposter who has infiltrated our fellowship and is threatening to pull us apart? How can we look at that one and do what Jesus asks us to do, to assume that that one is with us, that we have space among us for that one? How can we do that? The answer is love. Not the sentimental kind of love, but the kind of radical unconditional love that says no matter who you are, you are loved just the way you are. That kind of love has the power to change things. It's the kind of love that Jesus knows is attached to Jesus' name. Whoever begins to do deeds of power in my name, he assures the disciples, will not soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. That pretend disciple who's casting out demons... It's love that has given him that power because how else could you explain someone who comes to set another person free from being ostracized by society? That's love. That's unconditional love. And anyone who's come into touch with that love, anyone who's found the power of that love, tapped into it and begun to share it with the world around him, that person can't stay the same. Those walls of discrimination and fear begin to tumble down all around him. God's love for us, that unconditional love in the gospel of Jesus, that love has the power to strip us of our expectations and fears and embolden us to become vulnerable even to strangers so that we might make space in our hearts for them. That sounds like a family a really big family. Sometimes churches like ours call themselves a family, and in many ways we are like a family. This is a place where you can be authentically you. You can be honest and open, and we're still going to love you no matter what. That's who we are. That's what it means to be a part of this church. But sometimes congregations who call themselves a family send unintended messages about what it means to be a part of this group because families are often closed units. You can't just saunter up to somebody and join their family. You're born into families. You're adopted by families. You marry into a family after enduring the scrutiny of your in-laws, right? If we're going to be a family, if we're going to be God's family, 
we have to welcome everyone who walks in the door and allow that person to be who that person is authentically and vulnerably to us. And we have to be willing to share the same vulnerability with them. Everyone who comes in, even on the first day, has to know that they are as much a part of who we are as the person who has been here for her whole life. And that's a pretty risky way to do church. It's pretty risky to say to that person who walks in the door for the first time has as much authority as the senior warden. It's pretty remarkable to say that a visitor has a place at the family table. It's a pretty scary thing to make space for others like that here in our midst. But isn't that what God is calling us to do? Isn't that the way God has loved us? If we're going to be a church like that, if we're going to be God's family right here, we must be loved so that we can love. We must be loved so fully by God that that love spills out until we are able to love others the way that God loves them too. Then the walls fall down. Then we take that love with us into a world that is desperate to know that same love. We are loved. Everyone is loved. What a gift to share that story.